Hello and welcome to episode 106 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. <laughs> what's with the... Uh... What's with like the, I don't even know what that is. Is it like a game show introduction? Like an Ed McMahon introduction? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's a very topical, topical joke. No, I was more of a Larry Sanders show person than actual night, late night, you know. Night Court with uh, Harry Anderson? That too. Gary Shandling? Yeah, Gary Shandling. Rip. What was that show? What was that HBO show Shandling had? Like Dream On? Is that, no. no, it's not Dream On. The, he was on the Larry Sanders. The Sander- Gary Shandling show. The Larry, Larry Sanders, Sanders show. show. What? Yeah. So, Shane, I love that you mentioned Dream On because that is one of my earliest memories watching television with my parents when I was like wow. four and they had stolen cable HBO and we watched Dream On together. Yeah. I feel like Dream On was one of the earliest shows I remember being a weird show. Like it was like, hey, this is television. Like this is like a little bit different. And like it was also on HBO, so you couldn't really watch it normally, right? It also kind of pioneered like the family guy thing where it just had a bunch of random cutaways to jokes mm-hmm. oh yeah cool cool uh, tv podcast we have here also with us the godfather of television dave Harbarger. it's just me larry sanders on the show wondering why i get no respect from my my co-hosts <laughs> dave dave i like i like your hat oh do you like my hat yeah backdoor pilot for the hat episode yeah everybody uh i got the hat on to get some viral hype going on for the chat for uh dive down hats i am wearing a dive down hat this week does it come in flat brim there's only one <laughs> limited the dish and it's mine i'm the guy who wears a t-shirt of his own band to the show when he plays <laughs> that's what like half the members of iron maiden do at iron maiden concerts is wear iron maiden t-shirts that's awesome that is incredible it's great it's modern week on the dive down as we break down the weekend's mana traders modern tournament which briefly featured our very own dave harbarger in saturday swiss then we dive into modern hammer time and with a little aid from zagarda but first it's housekeeping Shout out to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation, Swarm Tides and Dan B. Welcome aboard. Also, thank you to Aaron C. for going up a tier in their patronage support. Love to see that. Thanks so much. Heck yeah. Listen, if you'd like to support the Dive Down and put money directly into the show's production, get something in return as well, check us out over at patreon.com slash the dive down. As little as a dollar an episode gets you into the super secret Slack channel. Today was a weird one, Monday morning, because Slack went down globally. And I guess everyone just went into Aspiring Spike's Twitch chat and <laughs> started talking about stuff there. Our backdoor Aspiring Spike pilot. So it was just all the, you know, we were just arguing about whether, how badly Modern was broken in Spike's chat. I'm sure he loved that. Latest previews. Yeah. Is this the worst leak ever or not? Yeah, if you go up a tier in your patronage, you get signed copies of the Dive Down card from Ixalan, Ixalan's finest, as I like to say a lot. What else do you get? You get some tokens with our faces on it, original artwork. Um, eventually, you can get a playmat. Eventually, you can even request specific topics for us to do episodes on. So if there's a deck that you've always wanted us to hear a dive into. Yeah, maybe someday we'll get a level with hats happening. Dave wants those hats. I think the people want those hats. The people want hats. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm going to double up the next two plugs. So we got Mana Traders. We got uh, the untapped direct link. Mana Traders, it's where you rent your Magic Online cards. 
been working with them for a long time. Again, I was reminded how awesome it is to rent cards <laughs> and how fast Mana Traders has become and how you never have to wait for anything anymore. Uh, and they run awesome tournaments, uh, of which when you are a Mana Traders uh, member, you get 10 times the prizing. Yeah, the tournament series for Mana Traders this month is Vintage. So if you've ever wanted to cast, you're one of Black Lotus, you're one of Mox Emerald, you're one of other reserved list cards, or not reserved list. Or it's, well, they are reserved. Restricted. They are restricted, yeah. If you want to cast some one-ofs, uh, I guess Vintage is the format to do that. And if you're good, you can win some cash money. So yeah, uh, ManaTraders.com. Uh, sign up code the dive down all one word gets you 15 percent off your first three months so head on over there thanks to those who continue their subscription with our code uh we also have a new little affiliate link each time you download the untapped software maybe i don't know maybe you do it every time we keep getting money i don't know download it 100 times don't tell them you did that uh you uh you can use this to track your arena performance your arena deck performance you can if you sign up for their premium thing it doesn't give us anything but i love it i love the premium part of untapped you get to see all the deck metadata you see win rates at various uh sort of tiers like platinum to mythic or wherever the heck you are you can see what the best performing decks are uh, we all love untapped untapped gives us a little kickback if you download the software you can get that directly at untapped dot the dive down.com and lastly before we get to the breakdown just want to mention again that we are live streaming episodes of our podcast now when we record on monday nights you can find us on twitch.tv slash the dive down underscore shane that's me that's shane uh we start around eight central time so please come and hang out We'd love to interact a little bit with you. We answer questions after. And also, it's nice to just get live feedback occasionally. The people in the Twitch chat save us from making mistakes all the time. And we appreciate yes. you. All right, Dave, don't go too far away because you're at the news desk this week. We've got you live on the scene. You are uh, on location uh, in, in the internet. I'm in the internet once again because this is where all tournaments occur right now. The flipping Neuromancer's back. I prefer Johnny Mnemonic. Lawnmower Man? Lawnmower Man? Lawnmower Man. I do like Lawnmower Man, too. That's one of my favorite gifts to send people when they talk about technology. And when we were talking about VR the other day, I got to send out some gifts of Aerosmith's video for Amazing. Anybody remember that? Because that was a real... 90s virtual reality uh fast and so i would recommend having a look if you have a minute to go go watch that that video for what they thought the future would be like anyway so this weekend as uh stan mentioned earlier was the swiss round for the mana traders december series which was modern and i qualified to play in that that's not that important but we wanted to talk about it today because it's probably one of the largest fields we've had for a modern tournament in the last few months. And probably since the last time Mana Traders ran a tournament, I, I even think. There were 312 people in the, Sw in the, the Swiss rounds, uh, and they cut to a top eight and then did their top eight on Sunday. It made it a nine-round tournament, which is basically day one of a Grand Prix. That's crazy. Yeah. So many people. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot. And they, they did a really good job kind of like moving people through the rounds, at least from what I saw from the rounds that I was there. Moves pretty snappy with their matching system and also just because of the timers on Magic Online, you know, makes it relatively uh, seamless. 
Like I said a minute ago, I was one of the people who entered the Swiss that day. I'm just going to get it out of the way because it was not a huge day for me by any stretch of the imagination. I uh, I registered Is It Blitz for the Swiss, as you probably can imagine that I did. Uh, not even anything too spicy. My sideboard was weird. Uh, I have stuck with playing Blood Moon out of Is It Blitz, which is a little bit of a risky proposition because sometimes you cut yourself off of blue. Dave, what's with this Is It Blitz thing? I don't know. I've finally given in. You're, you're just like... Goldfish calls it that. I'm calling it that. I, Fine. Literally every person I talk to calls it that. What? Like you just thought you're having casual conversation about is it decks? When they when it comes up in the Slack, people are like, I mean, people tweet at me and they say it's blitz. There was someone who drove by my house the other day and yelled out the window. Got a brick thrown through your window. It, yeah, with a piece of paper on it. It's blitz, dingus. It's a blue and red brick. Um. Anyway. So, like I was saying, my deck build wasn't too strange at all. My sideboard was a little bit weird. You know, I've stuck with Bedlam Reveler, so I have a be- one Bedlam Reveler in my main and one on my sideboard. Uh, I like to be able to up my card uh, card drawing sometimes or grind out a little bit in certain matchups. I like to play with a couple of Blood Moons. I don't like leaving home without it, even though sometimes you have to be really careful playing it out of that deck because you do cut yourself off of blue once Blood Moon hits the board, uh, other than Manamorphos. Uh, the one spicy, like interesting thing for me was that I put two copies of Vapor Snag in my sideboard, which I don't know if how many of you have played with that card, but it's unsummon for, uh, and it does one, it causes whoever controls the creature to lose one, one life. And I thought it was just a nice little piece of tech for things like worm coil engine, which I ran, I expected to see randomly in the Swiss sometimes, uh, other problematic blockers. It can get things like Uro and Omnath out of the way that I can also use Aethergust against, but it also helped against other things like colorless threats and stuff like that. I felt like it was pretty good. Uh, I saw somebody had done well. One of the people who had done well in the challenge, uh, one of the challenges last week had it in their sideboard. So I picked it up from them. I'm so I forget their name, unfortunately. Uh, but I thought that was good. And one nice thing is that it enables light up the stage for one mana. So sometimes you get a blocker out of the way, enable light up the stage, cast light up the stage, swing in with a bunch of guys early on. Now that's a nice piece of tech. <clears throat> I like that, that, that enabling light up the stage pre combat seems so nice. Did you ever pull that off? Oh yeah. Yeah, cool. I did it a couple of times, specifically against um, Dryad of the Elysian Grove in the the one of the matches that I won. It was it's really good against things that are just kind of like a pain to get out of the way, basically. So and likewise, set up light up the stage with yeah, definitely. I'm a big fan of of playing light up the stage pre combat in this deck because you can luck your way into Phyrexian mana spells that you want to play, or even a Manamorphose or something like that. And so I, there's a lot of situations where I'll just go gutch, you know, when I have Monastery Swisper out, I'll go like gutshot, light up the stage to see what else I draw and then kind of go from there. Um, anyway, I only went one, two, unfortunately. So I lost the first round, won the second round, lost the third round. I will say, I lost to Phil Helmuth, uh, Sam Rolf, uh, screen name Phil Helmuth in round one, and just got crushed by four-color Omnath. But I felt a little bit better because um, that player actually ended up winning the Swiss, coming in first in the Swiss. And so I was just the first little uh, check mark on there on a beautiful day for them. So good breakers. Yeah, my, my breakers actually were really good. So I finished one and two. There were 312 people in the tournament. I finished in 249th place with one win somehow. <laughs> somehow. I don't know why that happened, but I thought it was pretty funny. Um, I lost to an Oops All Spells Charbelcher list. 
which was what we saw a lot in the metagame, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. That build seemed to be favored over the Spies one this weekend. And I beat uh, Green White Titan, which is actually a deck that I think Blue Red has a pretty good matchup against. So there's my mini tournament report. You know, my day ended early. I just dropped after the third round and kind of move on. It's really hard to start a tournament like this with losses early if your goal is really to try to make some money. You know, like, and that's kind of where I was with it. You know, if I'm not playing the tournament, then I was, you know, I was away from my family playing the tournament. It was on a Saturday. And so I was kind of like, well, I'll roll it as long as I can. If I don't do well, I'll just move on with my day. And that's what I did. Dave, in a little bit of a shift, it's not just a tournament report breakdown. We actually have some metagame to discuss here. Yeah, that's why I kept the tournament report very short because it wasn't and the three rounds you played. Yeah, and, and kept it the three rounds that I played. The um, we did a good we did a look at the metagame ourselves, and just wanted to thank Mickey S for starting some work on the spreadsheet that we built this off of. Um, it's kind of hard because so there were three hundred and twelve people for which were nine rounds of Swiss, like I said. Um, we didn't do a ranking of the full metagame because I did not see a reconciled list of players' names and their positions with the decks that they played. So we actually manually put together people's deck lists, which were public and distributed to all the players uh, in the in the tournament, with the Swiss rankings that came out later later on Saturday night. So I had to go through and look at every position going down put the deck that they played and then put some comments in it. So that's how we de- developed our um, our spreadsheet. I stopped at 101 decks because I love 101 Dalmatians. Best dog movie. Yeah, it's best dog. Number one dog movie and number 101 dog movie as well. But the reason that I stopped there is because that happened to be the cutoff for people who had 15 points. So it was people who basically had winning records in the Swiss is where we stopped counting. So let's take a look at what that top... Hot 101 looks like. Q101. Hot decks. I still listen to that radio station. Local Chicago alternative. I was like, is that the alt-rock station here? Yeah. Yeah. I'm an XRT person. I just can't, you know, I can't get over the joy of hearing a random Dave Matthews band song every once in a while. (laughs) Anyway. Dave, what would you say if I asked you to continue (laughs) telling me about the minute? Yeah. (laughs) Two dogs in the back of a truck. Um, So let's, I broke it down into a couple of buckets. Number one. The top 50% of the metagame of this top 100-ish metagame was made up of six decks. And we'll talk about them here. Number one on the list, four-color Omnath with 15% of the metagame. You know it. You probably hate it. But it was the deck that most people brought in the winning slice of the metagame here. Of course, the interesting thing about this list is that it's kind of endlessly configurable. I saw builds that featured everything from two to four Omnaths. I saw ones that were playing the Time Warp kind of package as part of it. I saw some with Hour of Promise, some not. I saw one deck in this sample that was even submitted with Sahili Rai Felidar Guardian combo. Oh yeah, that was a thing for like a few weeks. Not totally sure how they managed to fit that into the deck or what they cut, but um, it was interesting to see the diversity among those shells, even though we all know what that shell is. It's Growth Spiral, Uro, Path Exile, Omnath, Cryptic Command, Mystic Sanctuary, all, all the cards everybody loves to hate. Next up, Red Black Shadow with 9%. Uh, it's definitely the most common build of Shadow at this point. I don't think there was another Shadow deck in the top 100, if my memory serves me correctly. This was it. There were there were nine of these, and and that was it. A lot more aggressive slant than the old Grixis version, of course. I think that this deck is much more akin to where Jund was at different points in time with Shadow. But all thanks to Scourge the Skyclaves. 
Number three, green, white Heliod with eight decks in Man, the top hundred. This surprises me. Oh yeah. Why is that? It's a lot of, it's a lot of clicking. I mean, I, it's, you still run the risk of people not scooping to you. And we're, let's not argue about whether that's okay or not, but you still run the risk of saying like, I have to gain a bunch of life and there's plenty of decks. And even if you get a couple hundred life, you don't necessarily win from that position. And I keep telling you, because of Conclave Mentor, when you gain a bunch of life, you make your spike feeders into 100 power beaters. So even if they don't scoop to the infinite life, they're going to have a hard time beating your spike feeder. So this is different than the old Heliod combo you're saying? Like you literally can save targets and make it work, which you could not do with the old pre-Conclave Mentor build. Correct. Then why are there still why is there people still discussing the fact that like it's not conclusive online? Is it because like people it's are not strange when a you're a stranger? <laughs> yeah, I mean sometimes they play basketball in the rain. And I think it's worth noting too that there is even one version of this deck that was mono white. So there are really nine versions in it. There's just one that wasn't running Conclave Mentor, but number three, Heliod. All right, number four, I think, is the surprise of the tournament as far as this 100-deck sample goes, and that is red, black, mid-range. 7% of the top 100 was this newish deck. Have you guys seen this deck? We haven't talked about it much on the show yet. Yeah, I just kind of saw it this week in response to preparing for the episode. Yeah, it's an interesting deck. It has um, Magmatic Channeler in it as kind of like the new card that seems to be enabling a lot of what it's up to. It manages to run four Blood Moon main, so it's got a little bit of that Ponza energy in some ways because it's just going with like a land disruption package. Now, you you do have outlets to discard extra Blood Moons, which is nice in this build, but it's got Kroxa, Magmatic Channeler, Season Pyromancer, Bonecrusher Giant, Liliana the Veil, your kind of basic red-black removal and hand disruption suite and Blood Moon. And that's the deck. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Channeler, and this feels like the Channeler deck to me in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. And like, But it's also like the kind of deck that can get a lot out of every piece that it's playing, which I like. And what I like a little bit more about this deck than kind of a traditional Jun style build is like it's even more synergistic where like the pieces are working together in ways that make sense. And like the thing that sort of sticks out a little bit is like Bone Crusher Giant is like, is this just a more expensive Tarmogoyf? But because decks like this typically play a little bit of a longer game than Jun does, like think about like old uh, Mardu Pyromancer style decks where it's like, okay, this is the even grindier version of Jund or Obzon or something like that. You can get your two for ones with that bone crusher giant. And you can't always get that with your Tarmogoyf. Like your Tarmogoyf is never a shock. You know what I mean? But uh bone crusher giant is when you need it to be. And what I like about like Channeler and Pyromancer in this deck is like they're working to continually fill the hand and lead to some actual sort of like long game card advantage, providing bodies as well. Uh, Channeler can be a pretty nice card for two mana, make it, you know, four, four for two mana, even in modern, perfectly fine, especially one that when it sticks on the board provides ongoing advantage. It's the kind of deck that I think classic mid-range players are going to look at and say okay this has liliana of the veil maybe i can do something with it yeah i think this is one of those decks that i already have in paper basically just because it's a new configuration of 
other cards that I already had. And so that's kind of cool to see a new solution emerge in mid-range that just does some new interesting stuff. Uh, more on his performance later, though. Uh, the next deck in the sample, Green-White Titan with 6%. We've talked about this a bit. Shane played this deck two weeks ago, last week? Yeah. Two weeks ago? Know. Yeah. All blends together. Yeah, Elvish Reclaimer, Primetime, Dryad, supplement with Eldamry's Call for a little bit of Toolbox Element, and there you go. It's a Valakit deck. It's a it's a Toolbox deck. It's all kinds of stuff. Um, any surprise that this was 6% of the field? It's interesting to see that it's sort of becoming even more popular than Amulet. I think that's been a case for a little while now. You question whether or not you can call it the default Titan deck for Titan fans, because you know Amulet Titan is a little bit further down the list. I don't think it's in our uh, our top list because it's done enough copies, but it's still a, a good amount. And then the last one in the top 50%, which was a little bit of a surprise to me, is the Oops All Spells deck. There was 5% of the meta out of the top 100, and... They were almost all, these are all Charbelcher decks. So five people came with the ones that were just the Recross the Paths Charbelcher deck that we had covered earlier on. I think that maybe people are into this because this deck is less vulnerable to graveyard hate than the Spy Build is. The one with, um, you know, that makes you mill your whole deck and then that's how you win with um, bringing back Venshine and all that kind of stuff. So it seems like maybe that's what's going on here, but I definitely faced on this deck and it was tough for me to, to, you know, I lost to it and I really didn't have any cards on the sideboard that I felt like were any good against either. I did not have like pithing needle with me this particular week or anything like that. So do you think on average that that deck is faster than prowess? Is that why you struggled against it? Oh man, I died on turn three, both games. So (laughs) maybe. Yeah. It's so fast. I think the game that I won, I won on turn four. So on the play. So they, if they had had a fourth turn, they probably would have killed me. So I, I, it is pretty fast. Okay, so that's your top half. Six decks, 50% of the meta right there. I have a couple of notes on the bottom half of the top 100 meta that I could just go through pretty quick. One thing that I thought was really interesting, the bottom half of this meta was 30 different decks. So the top half of the meta was six decks. The bottom half of the meta was 30 decks with various amounts from one to four entries each. In- interesting things I saw in this, there were four copies of Sultai Control, similar to the historic deck that you might imagine. Not that it runs um, Nissa the Shakes the World or anything like that, but it bolstered the overall numbers of Uro in general across the sample. It was just a different deck. The other deck that caught my eye here is that there were four copies of Hammer Time in this lower kind of half of the meta. So these are the decks that kind of just missed making our top half sample. There were four people on Is It Blitz. Uh, all prowess decks in this tournament were in this bottom half in uh, in this this section of the tournament. So none of them made it into the top kind of 50 uh, percent as far as meta representation goes. There were 18 different one-off decks making one-offs the highest portion of this point of the meta. Even this winning area was more one-offs than anything else. And the big, big note, there were two, two copies of Electro Dominance as foretold in the top 12. They finished in ninth place and 11th place, just shy of a top eight, both of them. What do you think about that? Stan is looking shocked. So is this the Restore Balance version or the one with the Greater Gargadon? It's Greater Gargadon. Greater Gargadon. I can check really quick, but yes. Really cool. It was mostly crashing footfalls is what we're looking at. Sure. Right, right. Those are like the two threats in the deck. You got 4-4 Trampling Rhinos that you can get back for just two mana thanks to finale of devastation is that the red one? Oh, this is restore balance too sorry i'm looking at this the, the list right now so this deck has four restore balance three ancestral vision three gargadon simian spirit guide serum vision lightning bolt 
as foretold, electro dominance, finale of promise, force of negation, and crashing footfalls. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Cool deck. I mean, I don't know what particular conditions might have come together to make it happen in this particular way, but um, two people made a really good meta call if, if it's a specific fit for some reason, because ninth and 12th is, or uh, what is it? Ninth and 11th is impressive. Yeah. It might be such that it's hard for the Euro decks to interact with it. And these pilots were maybe able to dodge Thoughtseize decks because I feel like that's the thing it's really vulnerable to. Good point. Okay. Next thing, last, last note on this bottom half, there wasn't a single Jonder Rock deck in the top 100. No green-black-based decks. Are those good? They're... Depends who you ask. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're good when they run blue. Yeah, exactly. The Saltai lists were there. Although, you know, of course, those are much, much different. And so the, the grindiest decks here were much more like the Channeler version than anything else. So pretty interesting. Okay, what do we think about a meta that looks like this? Or do you want me to talk super types before I get some meta hot takes from the two of you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, do that. Super types. A couple of more interesting things about this meta. So we took a second and thought, why don't we try to chunk these up into bigger archetypes, somewhat arbitrarily, the way that we want to do it, and just see what it feels like. So if you kind of chunk some decks together, what happens is you get 20% of the decks were Uro decks, 17% of the decks were Mm. Other, meaning one or two ofs. 12% 12% of the decks were Titan. Ugh. Right there, that's about 15%, 50% of the meta right there. So in a way, Uro decks and tit- Primeval Titan decks make up 33% of this meta. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, also included, of course, in the Uro slice is uh, it's comprised of four-color Omnath, Saltai, and a lone Teamer Wreck deck. Titan, of course, is composed of green-white Amulet and the Odd Scape Shift deck. That's uh, 12 decks in total. And then from there, you go Shadow, all the Heliod, all the Prowess, Red Black Mid, and Oops All Spells is kind of where it's at. All right. So Mm. what do you all think about the meta in this? I I think my feeling of the meta in this is colored by my my understanding and playing in Historic and what I see in Pioneer. And so like the popularity of Uro in Modern like gives me bad feelings because it's like, Hey, this is this is a problematic card because it's so good in so many formats and in so many decks where it's like, hey, you're going to see me at the top of the tournament tables in Historic and Pioneer and Modern. And I know we're just talking about Modern here, right? But the fact that it's just in the top decks of basically every format that we talk about and play is just kind of like boring to me. And, you know, I also find Titan boring at this point and at least it's not something that you can guarantee you're going to see in every league you play, I suppose. But like, I just sort of have an issue with, with these, these decks that's just like, Hey, we're, we're such a huge force in the meta and you can throw field, you know, the dead in there as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say just to dial back towards Titan a little bit. I, I will say one thing that's interesting is that I find playing against green, white Titan, a lot more interesting than playing against amulet personally because it feels like a more interactive deck to me that they they have different plans you can disrupt them in different ways amulets a bit more in my mind combo-esque and so they're trying to get to a certain kind of combination of cards to win which of course green white is also trying to do but um it just feels like you can do some more interesting stuff you can fly over them you can do a few other things and so in some ways, I find that find that deck a little less tedious than other Titan decks, but I get I get what you mean. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just like the the sim- similar strategies play out in similar ways across multiple formats, especially with like Uro concepts. And it's just like, God, like we get it. Uro's a good card and it's still the kind of card where it's like not so egregious in itself that it must be banned. But like if this was a digital game, that card would have been nerfed months ago. You know what I mean? And so they're, yeah. they're, Watsi's in a tough place where it's like, well, do we ban this card? What formats do we ban it from? At what point is it? necessary when you in any other game it just would have its knobs tweaked a little bit stan what are your thoughts okay a couple things for starters i think what we're seeing is a little bit of end of format stasis where this metagame isn't surprising to me except for the fact that like all of a sudden red black midrange is growing in popularity but you're not going to say that red black midrange is suddenly taking over the format by any means we still kind of have pretty clear delineations of what the top decks and what the most popular decks are. Um, And maybe we're frustrated with Uro because we've been dealing with nonstop Uro for the last three to six months. But once Coldland comes out, we might see a shakeup. And maybe at that point, Uro won't be the de facto best creature in the format. Or maybe it won't be a format that's defined so much by Uro and Primeval Titan. Man, I don't know. Like if, if the format becomes not, not, governed by uro i hate to see what it's governed by (laughs) oh yeah i mean don't get me wrong it's gonna be bad whatever it is but we'll have to settle on that when it comes when the time comes uh the other thing is and i think this is maybe just like personal preference at this point but i still feel less hopeless when opponent casts uro than i do when opponent casts primeval titan as long as we're talking about those two titans just because Titan comes down, the game is over. Uro comes down, you can path it and maybe survive. But like Titan also is enabling all these other stupid things like Valakit and Field of the Dead simultaneously. It's not just the Titan, it's everything else they've set up as part of their plan. Whereas Uro, it's a slower, more mid-rangey deck. Uro is a part of their plan, but it's not like it's a, a game ender on the spot. It is for some decks, but you can beat it. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, my take after playing a good amount of modern recently is I still feel generally okay with it, but it's it's hard to get past the whole Mamwai is Uro everywhere thing. Yeah. Even yeah. when I feel like I run kind of cold as far as seeing Uro, like I, I just don't feel like I see it that much, but I know it's there. And now we have even more proof that at a high level event, that's what people want to bring. Not that we really needed it. We knew from challenges and things like that. Yeah, my if Uro decks felt like they played in significantly different ways then I might be better with it. But I, I mean, and I'm, I'm certain I'm overlooking something here. Right. But I feel like Uro piles feel like they play like Uro piles in a variety of formats and say something like death shadow, death shadow plays pretty significantly different in different decks. I think like the shadow itself is the same threat. And it has the same goal, which is to have a pretty low life total and attack with. But the way you get to getting that creature online, the other cards that are coming along for the ride are different in significant enough ways that I'm not like, okay, every shadow deck plays the same. And so that's what kind of just gets old. I think it's interesting to bring up shadow specifically since that was a card that, what, three years ago, people wanted banned as well because of the dominance of Grixis shadow for a certain amount of time and so um you know i do think it's always possible that there's metagame conditions that can change without being terrible that make the dominant deck uh rotate along you know i mean a lot of grixis was brought down by stuff like humans right where they were just good at getting out of the way and being super aggressive and so there might be something else like that in the wings that'll happen but 
the return on value of Uro is just so much different than Shadow, realistically, where Shadow is just an incredibly efficient threat, but it doesn't draw you cards and it doesn't gain you life. So, yeah, you know, we'll see. If it did, that would be bad. Yeah. If you're supposed to be at a certain life total and then it came into play and gained you three life, you'd be like, oh, man, put it into play. Now it died. Ah, <laughs> oh, stink. Okay, last random thought on the meta. I wanted to try something a little different this week because of the way that we had the decks and because that we because we had this kind of top 100 sample. We decided to do average point total for deck archetypes and talk about that a little bit here as a way to like look at how decks performed within this this meta game. Um, so what we did was we took the point totals and divided their total the total amount that each deck got by the number of pilots who had it in the top 100 to get to a number of average points that each one got. I'm not sure that, you know, I think this is kind of like a little bit of a rough way to do a ranking, but it's certainly a different way to look at it that tries to get you past like the actual places that people got and give you a better sense of how a group of decks performed. Any, th- any problems with this thinking or you think that this is something we can do? No, I like it because it's like it's like cutting to a top 32 or something like that. But it's a little more granular within that cut where it's like, hey, um, we can actually look at the performance within a certain sample size. And I think one thing that was really interesting to me was that the, um, you know, these decks performed pretty wildly different than some of their finishes, I guess I would say. I would put, um, what I did was I looked at the top decks that had four or more entries sorted by average points. And we can just go down that really quick. And the number one deck that had four entries in this sample, the highest number of average wins. Anyone want to take a guess without looking at the sheet? You've all looked at the sheet. Yeah, we wrote these notes. Yeah. The number one deck on this list was actually Hammer Time. What? Where the pilots of this deck on average got 19 and a half points. And from what I found, I think that 18 points is right around the line that you would want to be at for what was like good performance. This flattens that out a lot because, for example, Four Color Omnath had the most points. It had 264 raw win points, but it also had so many pilots that its average number of points was much, much lower. So Hammer Time kind of emerged at the top at 19 and a half wins. It, it actually is a full point ahead any of the other decks in this particular part of the sample. The next deck on that list is Red Black Shadow, which had 18 and two thirds points per pilot, basically. So above average, good, almost a whole point above average. Oops All Char Belcher was next with 18.6. And then there were two decks right at 18, which is Saltai Control had 18 points per pilot and is it blitz also had 18 points per pilot so if you want to look at like an average points per deck kind of performance these were the five decks that i think actually performed the best that had a larger sample size now the decks that were interesting that were right below that number of 18 the number one is four color omnath was actually only 17.6 points per pilot followed by green white titan with 17.5 points per pilot pilot amulet titan with 17.25 points per titan and one thing i thought was interesting was that there were only two titan decks in the top 30 most of the decks uh you know so that was dragged down on average quite a bit and then the last one on our sample that i wanted to mention was red black mid-range which only had 15.4 points per pilot so it was this mid-range deck was really well represented and a lot of people tried it out but I think it actually performed kind of poorly across the event if you if you look at it this way. Surprise. A mid-range deck without Uro. Trying to trying to make Kroxa as good as Uro, not a thing. Turned out it didn't work. I mean it might. I mean this is a you know, this is one tournament, but yeah. 
you know. Okay, last couple of things here. There were three decks that caught my eye that had 20 points each that had three pilots each. So these are just outside of our sample size. And those three decks were Mono Green Tron, Dredge, and Adnos. All actually performed better than any of the decks in our in our larger sample did. Can you I'm sorry, can you help me understand what these three decks like they have twenty points each. Does that mean they're all top eight decks? They were not uh well there was one mono green trauma in the top eight. We'll talk about the top eight in a second. But these are just people who performed consistently towards the top half, you know, of the probably in the top thirty two or top sixty four who managed to bring up the average for the three people who played each one of these decks. So these weren't played by many people, but all of them did well is basically what I would take away from this one. So how many points do you need to get into the top eight? Twenty four. And a couple of twenty ones got in. Gotcha. Okay. So you need to go eight one or seven and two. Understood. It, it pretty was interesting more, though i wasn't yeah. expecting to see all these older decks suddenly be like yeah we did better than four color omnath and with smaller sample sample size but interesting yeah, and, nonetheless and from these three decks it wasn't just tron that made it to the top eight either but i'll i'll let you oh get you're that. right there was an ad in the top eight too so that undoubtedly moved the average of all these decks up but still interesting for looking at things on averages there it is all right last thing since we've talked about the metagame so much this is a long breakdown we're just going to talk about the top eight really quickly so coming out of the swiss the number one player as i mentioned earlier was phil helmuth on four color omnath number two out of swiss was hanno lee on mono green tron number three was ii nano on red black shadow number four was gerardo 94 on four color omnath number five was court on green white heliod number six was vila celta on ad nauseum Number seven was Gobe FTW on Teamer Wreck, which is an interesting one. And number eight was Harry 13, Saltai Control. Yeah, way to go. Some Omneths, some Titans. Actually, no Titans. Some Heliods. Yeah. Uro is a Titan of Nature's Wrath. That's right. So we had a top eight that was 50% Uro, and then the others were Tron, Shadow, Heliod, and Adnaz. Gerardo 94 won on four-color Omnath, so that was the deck that took it all home. Congrats, Gerardo. Yeah. All right. So parting thoughts on this as we kind of went through this deep breakdown on modern right now. I think this is a nice bookend to what the modern format looks like now. Like we're going to have at least two, maybe three more weekends of challenges before call time comes out. But like, I don't think we're going to see many more changes beyond this moving forward unless Watsy does something or by some unexpected miracle, somebody unlocks a brand new deck that no one sees coming. But I think this is kind of the meta game that we've been seeing and that we're going to probably keep seeing for the next couple of weeks. And hopefully we can try to find a way to beat it with uh, new cards. I do wonder with hindsight, Dave, and after parsing through all this data, whether you think there may have been a deck selection that could have metagamed against everything you saw here. I mean, given what decks I think that I um, could be good at playing... I, I, given the average number of wins that is it got, I feel okay with that deck choice. I was feeling pretty bad about it after the immediate play because I was kind of like, eh, nobody's going to play this deck. It's not going to do very well. But you know, even though it didn't have any top uh, like high ranking finishes, it still had a high average number of wins per per pilot in this top hundred. So I feel okay with that choice still. I I think that I could do well with Hammer Time. <laughs> given a little bit more practice and so with this knowledge i probably would have given that a shot 
as well. Yeah, be one week ahead rather than one week one week behind, as we'll probably see will be the case after some more tournament results in the dive down. Exactly. I mean, it's good timing for us, considering we're about to spend an hour talking about hammer time after this, but uh, kind of funny that that's how it worked out. We did not cook these numbers. We just tweaked them a little bit. All right, that wraps up a very thorough breakdown for this week. Dave, congrats again for qualifying for the Swiss. Tough beats, but I'm sure you'll get them next time. What are you going to do? We're going to take a very quick break, and when we return, we are diving into Hammer Time, Modern's heaviest deck. It's the new affinity, they say. I'm not saying that, but people are saying this. Stay with us. All right, this week we'd like to thank our patrons for helping us choose the topic of today's show. To help us pick which deck to dive into, we surveyed the Dive Down Nation for their input on which decks are worth paying closer attention to. And after 69 very nice responses, Modern Hammer Time won with 57% of the vote. Once again, democracy prevailed. Patrons, let, let us know if you liked this approach to picking, picking a deck topic. Uh, maybe we'll give it a shot again in the future. But gentlemen, let me ask, what is Hammer Time? Where did it come from, and why is it here? I, I can answer some of my own questions I have, too. <laughs> I have no, I have no idea why this deck is here. Please, someone help me f- figure it out. I mean, I think it's here because Colossus Hammer got printed, but I'll wait for some more details. So, from a high level, Hammer Time is just a essentially a mono white aggro deck, though it sometimes splashes black for some sidebar cards, or in the past has also splashed red for certain redundancy pieces. And the deck is primarily designed to cheat on the Colossus Hammer equip cost to give your cheap turn one or turn two creatures plus 10 plus 10, hopefully for zero mana. And we'll go through the notable creature shortly, along with the equipment synergies that give this deck its main plan. But it's essentially a new installment in the affinity slash infect slash bogles style of aggro decks. A little history. To put this all into context, the heart of this deck is not particularly new, and it has essentially existed since 2019 when Colossus Hammer got printed with Core 20. And though its potential with Sigardus Aid was identified pretty quickly by the Hive Mind, the deck itself didn't really take off until spring of 2020 when Luris came out and gave this deck a whole new tool to grind and be more resilient. And this is the OG Luris, not even the altered Luris, which is still good. Very true. Not again, Luris. How could you do this to us? Add even more decks to the meta. Early versions of this deck were Boros for cards like Magmatic Theft to help cheat on equip costs. And it also ran Swift Blade Vindicator, which is a double strike, vigilance, and trampler for two mana, red and white. Eventually, the deck evolved by cutting red entirely and replacing Magmatic Theft and Swift Blade Vindicators with Pure Steel Paladins, Ornithopters, Memnites, basically more cheap threats and a way to cheat on the equip cost tech to a body. Yeah, I have to admit that I was surprised Like when you look at the original Boros version and you're like, this has to be faster or this has to be more reliable but I guess there's just something about these you know, zero mana creatures, something about 
having access to maybe the hand interaction of, of Thoughtseize and maybe Fatal Push in the side. Like it's like magnetic magnetic theft gave you that instant speed equip. That's just such an awesome effect, right? And and we'll talk about what that effect, how that effect still exists in the the mono white or, or Orzov version a little bit later. But yeah, I was surprised to see the Boros version fade and the sort of white or, or, or Orzov version rise to the top. Totally agree. You guys might recall I played a little bit of the Boros version Once Upon a Time, mm-hmm. and not with Once Upon a Time in it though. No, it was banned by then. By the right. time I picked up this deck, but I found when I was testing for this episode, not only did I miss Magmatic Theft at first, I kind of had to relearn the deck because your keep mold decisions are very different once you add four to, I think, six or eight even zero mana artifact creatures to your aggro plan. But we've cut red. Now we've started splashing black for Thoughtseize, maybe some Fatal Push, uh, Unearth as well for more recursion targets. Back when the deck ran red, it was mostly pretty fringe. Even though the power level was arguably there, it really existed on the outskirts of modern compared to where it is today. Because once it started splashing black, things changed. Yeah, I mean, it's good, right? Like, over the last few months, this deck's... Well, you think it's tier one? I mean, maybe after this weekend, it's tier one. I would say over the last couple of weeks it's become tier one ish right not it's not really tier one ish it's become trendy yeah it's definitely on trend i think it's a deck that can be hated out in particular ways in which we'll talk about playing against this deck yeah i mean this is like heliod company oops all spells like is it blitz slash prowess level deck right based on goldfish data yeah in terms of meta share and, and representation yeah and it's had some high end results lately i mean we just talked about the surprise that it was one of the leading decks as far as average wins go in our sample from mana traders but also you know it appeared in the in the modern challenge finals in a mirror match it's become a staple in 5-0 leagues prelim data has done well you know i'm looking at a tweet right now from well-known magic uh mtgo personality laplazan talking about how they went 9-0 into 13-2 but also went 15-0 with hammer time on an earlier stretch i've seen other people say similar things about this deck it's happening yeah, not only did it uh, have a mirror match in the Sunday Modern Challenge Finals, it put four copies into the top eight, including third and fifth place. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely now the hype deck after this weekend, I think. Like, if you want to dive into the Mana Traders data, you could probably figure out that it did well, but then you see four copies in a challenge top eight, and you're going to see this in your leagues. Dave mentioned Laplace John, but there have been a number of notable modern stalwarts that have pioneered this deck including tom ross wombo combo spider space triosk so as i see it the long story short deck is here deck is good dexy's playing the neighborhood all right so how are we gonna get into this you gotta tell me here's the thing i'm gonna want to understand a little bit more because i played this deck i think i didn't get it as well as you two got it to be honest just from the way the slack yeah worked and i was also playing mana traders so i was a little distracted i haven't played against this deck very much lately i just want to know like is this just a combo deck and what are we doing to make it not just a combo deck outside of that's the only that's the thing i'm going to mostly want to know and i think anybody who listens to this is going to want to know outside of like how the combo itself gets put together hmm you're i know we're going to talk more about this in detail later um I think it depends on 
a little bit of how you build the deck, a little bit of how you want to play the deck, and then a little bit of what your matchup is. Because I think that there have there are games when I had a virtual or a real win on like turn two or three, and then there are games when I won on like turn fifteen, like literal turn fifteen. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and that's kind of amazing for a deck like this when you're like, oh, this has to just be like a combo deck where you win on turn three most of the time, right? And I I think that it that's one of the things that I like about the deck, and I'll I'll talk more about it, at least in my general feelings about it, but I think that it, it, it can it has a lot of play to it, which is like what people say when they feel smart when they're playing a deck, right? But I think that it I think that it does. I think that it has a lot of pieces that give it resiliency, which is an advantage to the deck itself and makes it somewhat better than a strict combo deck to answer your real to your original question. I was also mostly just trying to set up your discussion, but thanks, thanks for the thanks for the the teasers to later. Yeah, I think maybe this is a good time to start reviewing some of the core cards behind this deck's plan that you should expect to see from your opponents if they're playing it, or that you need to prioritize if you're going to start playing it, and really understand to fully grasp what this deck is capable of. Really, yeah. So I kind of when I was playing this deck, and I'm curious if you guys agree with me or not. I kind of felt it like in a few different categories of card, which is like ways you get hammer ways, you cheat hammer cheap stuff that can wear a hammer. And then like the other cards, the support cards. And I think that I think it makes sense to kind of start with the way you get hammer, because that's kind of what the whole deck is designed around, or at least sort of the fundamental like design and, and idea of the deck is to, beat down with a suited up creature. And so there's a few ways you can get hammers. And one is Steel Shaver's Gift, which is a single white mana sorcery and lets you just search your library for an equipment card, reveal it, put it in your hand, shelf your library. Straight up, just single white mana tutor for an equipment card. Yeah, I mean, Very one straightforward. Thing, yeah, and the one thing that's super important about this too is like, you know, they trended away from tutors for a while that put, car, you know, there's a lot of, there's like tutors that put them in your hand and then they went to tutors that put it on top of your deck. And now this is one, and that's a huge differential in power, and this is one that puts it into your hand. And so very powerful kind of like combo piece in a deck where you need to, to get a specific card. Yeah, not, and not to understate, it's a single white mana. It's cheap. It's perhaps the cheapest tutor that really sees play in modern. Yeah, which is important in this deck because you're typically running on just a few lands and but as we'll see uh colossus hammer allows you to work with just a few lands as well uh next up is stoneforge mystic i don't know what this card does can you guys remind me i've I've actually never i've never cast this card either <laughs> so is this the only deck where the equipment that it's cheating in that it is bringing into your hand are all less cmc than stoneforge's activated ability i, I mean there are there are some advantages to Stoneforge Mystic having the activated ability, of course, uh, of putting the equipment into play versus casting. Uh, we'll talk about that later, of course. Um, but yeah, it's kind of nice to have the ability to like 95% of the time get another hammer or your first hammer. But then every once in a while, you're like, okay, well, I can get, you know, one of these other auxiliary pieces of equipment that we'll talk about as well. Mm-hmm. Or you can, you, know, you can just draw a Colossus hammer. Like there are four in the deck. You will draw them frequently uh and colossus hammer name of the name of the deck single mana equipment equipped creature gets plus 10 plus 10 and loses flying the hammer is so big 
Can't fly anymore. Uh, it has an equip cost of eight. That's a lot. How are you putting this? How are you putting this on your creatures? I wanted to, and I, I never could. So the other thing that you have to do here is you run Expedition Map, and you run Tron and Ancient Strings, and that's that's how you do it, right? Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, speak. I mean, did any of you feel like you're just always drawing hammers? Like, and I didn't even hate it. It was just like, yeah. give me all the hammers. Yeah, it never it never hurts to draw a hammer. Never hurts to draw any equipment, really. But, you know, Shake, you're joking, and it's hilarious, but we're never paying eight to equip that hammer. Are you you serious? There's this whole other class of cards that we need to talk about, which are ways to cheat on hammer's equipment cost. Okay. Tell me about them. Okay, the first one. And and this, this card is so important that it could be the other namesake card of this deck. You're right. If hammer gets banned. And that is <laughs> Sigarda's Aid. Or what, like equipping, like, I don't know. Uh, Basilisk ca- collars? Argentum Armor, I think, is the card you're looking for. <laughs> that's, a re- that's a shout out for the real, the real Zen heads. Sigarda's Aid is a single white enchantment that reads you may cast aura and equipment spells as though they had flash that's pretty good there's another line of text though even better whenever an equipment enters the battlefield under your control you may attach it to target creature you control you don't have to pay an equipment cost of cigar eight on the board that seems like a good combo this is like like you said and this is like the card you mulligan for right because it's it's the most important cheating aid because it's like it's often your turn one play. A lot of people don't have great ways to remove enchantments in their main deck. Uh, it gives you that instant speed equip option, which gives you like a really cool line of play, like swinging in with a flyer, like your Ink Moth Nexus or your Ornithopter, and like they're unblocked, and then you slap that hammer on them. So it's like, yeah, they lost flying, but they already jumped over all those blockers or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. What what a move. That... So Sigarda's Aid is so important that it not only enables your fastest kills, but it makes turn two kills possible in this deck with an opening hand of two lands, Sigarda's Aid, two hammers, and a zero mana creature, where you turn one Ornithopter and Sigarda's Aid, turn two land, swing with the Ornithopter, and cast your two hammers after attacks. I guess really after block so that your opponent doesn't get a chance to block and then you hit for 20. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about this too is that if you're playing against someone who tries to lightning bolt it, you just cast the other hammer in response. Yes. Yeah. I guess. Did, did that happen to you all? I wish. I, I definitely, I avoided like one piece of red removal like that where it's like they had two, but I had two hammers type thing or I don't know. They had two, but I had like three hammers. It was something absurd. But yeah, it's that's always nice to be able to like just sort of nullify damage-based removal with just more hammers. Stan, it's funny, like you say you need two hammers for the turn two kill, but I've had I had a few virtual turn two kills where just a single hammer was enough to to hammer their spirits down. There is one other way to cheat on the equip cost in this deck with another card named Pure Steel Paladin. White white for a two two creature reads Whenever an equipment enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card. That's pretty good. There's another line of text, though. Metalcraft. Equipment you control have equip zero as long as you control three or more artifacts. So, Shane, to your previous point, as much as I would frequently try to mulligan to a Sigardazade, I would also sometimes settle on a pure steel paladin because one of my key heuristics when, when playing this deck in the past and now is you got to find a way to cheat on those equip costs because yeah. they're the biggest mana sink in this deck that you don't want to pay if that makes sense yeah like 
for me, Paladin felt like a backup plan. Like you can you can fill the board with cheap with cheap artifacts often. Maybe that's just a bunch of hammers that like you've tutored up or drawn naturally. Uh, maybe it's the the cheap artifact creatures. Maybe it's some of the support cards we're going to talk about. Like Paladin gets the job done, and like the SRAM impression helps fuel your hand a little bit. I I found myself cutting this card when I would bring in things like if it was a four Oriac champion matchup or like I expected my cheaper artifact creatures to be not be surviving. And it's like, well, I'm not going to have Metalcraft online easily. Uh, I would definitely have, it's definitely the kind of thing where it's like, I don't need this to win when I really want to rely on Sigarda's aid. And I shave a few Paladins. Interesting. I generally sideboarded out stuff like Mishra's bauble. <laughs> When I was trying to do stuff like that. Yeah, that that would go out. I mean, that kind of stuff too. Like I wouldn't frequently do it, but like if I was if I was going into a more aggressive matchup where it's like this is an Oriok champion or bust matchup. Like that's the kind of thing where it's like, okay. Also, I also ran the next card though, which is Core Outfitter. Yeah, this card I hadn't seen in any list, and so I was I was interested to see it in the file because it's not here when I when I left the file yesterday. So how often do you think this is showing up? I I've, I saw it as a full four of in a recent deck, not one of the the four top eight modern challenge decks. None of them ran Core Outfitter. I ran it as a singleton uh, in a deck I took from a recent good performing good performing deck. Uh, it replaced the cranial plating, which I think is not necessarily the best replacement. But when so what Core Outfitter is, it's a white white core soldier two two. When it ETBs, you may attach you may attach target equipment you control to target creature you control. So I like this as an ETB, which is kind of subtly different than the pure steel paladin ability. Not hugely, uh, because you know, you can still just use pure steel paladin's uh, effect right away his ability right away like the opponent doesn't get any kind of priority back after casting pure steel paladin but what i like about it is it's a nice thing to peel back with luris late game when you don't have to have anything else on the board to get that cheap equipment cheaty cost like if you have a single hammer and you get a court outfitter back, you instantly can get that equipment back on to maybe it's your Luris, maybe it's court outfitter uh, themselves. It's a nice thing that doesn't require anything else on the board at all. Totally agree. My black-white list did not have this, but I sort of missed it. It did see playing the old red-white versions as well. And I, I think this card is like a great little uh, safety plan. Safety it's pin. It's a kind of thing... I feel like it's a kind of thing like if you... If your cyber didn't feel so stretched right now, like I feel like you have to run for uh, Oriac champion, like just sort of getting to the sideboard thing. Like you just need four Oriac champs right now. If you didn't need four, then like I'd probably make more room for some more core outfitters or something like that. But we're talking about a different metagame. All right. So these are some creatures. I think this segues us nicely into other things to put hammers on because it's not always going to be core outfitters and pure steel paladins. We've, Sort of danced around them a little bit, but this deck runs as many as eight zero mana creatures. Memnite, which is the 1-1, one, one, Ornithopter, which is the 0-2 flyer. And they cost zero, importantly. Indeed they do. Always terrible, always great. <laughs> Memnite, Ornithopter, holding hands into the end of time. All right. Like I mentioned earlier, they, they do enable turns two kills. Um, sometimes 
turn three also is good enough. Yeah, for sure. Um, since we don't have like a dedicated section and talking about how to play this deck, like I, I'm curious to hear your all thoughts when you wanted to play these creatures and deploy them out. Like it's super tempting to dump your hand where it's like, okay, well I have this zero mana card and it makes more sense on the board than in my hand. Right. And I don't think that's always the case. Like I frequently wanted to hold them back maybe just a single turn until I knew I could get a hammer on them perhaps more reliably or more quickly. Like there's not a lot of point in exposing that Memnite to removal if you aren't planning on swinging with it next turn. Right. That's the main thing I was going to say was something, you know, it, you can't really give it haste in, in many of these builds. So sometimes you do have to play it out that turn earlier and hold everything else back. Yeah, and I mean, they're also artifact creatures, which turns on Pure Steel Paladin's Metalcraft ability quite well. So, like, these are weirdly valuable in this deck, and they do a lot of... They don't do a lot. They do a few important things, like either enable your fastest kills or get Metalcraft working to cheat on the Hammer Equip, which is what this deck is all about. Yeah, but this is just the stuff that make reminds me with this deck of Affinity, you know, yes. where it's kind of like you could get busted open airs without attacking too hard just by getting Metalcraft turned on early, getting Springleaf Drum turned on with a zero mana creature. Stuff like that really helps you kind of ramp your way into something even, uh, you know, better on turn two or turn three. For sure. For sure. They definitely, there's a lot of synergies later that um, I'm hyped about, and I'm interested to see what you guys have to say as well. I think the, the one thing that makes it a good idea to maybe like expose them to removal so to speak is if you have multiple of these zeros and you know that you can equip them with cigar aid at instant speed on the following turn i did like kind of putting them all out there a if if one eats a removal spell that's one less removal spell to to eat whatever i'm trying to put a hammer on and b sometimes what you could do is you can swing with multiple creatures and if you have cigar aid on the board whatever they try to point a removal spell at is what you turn in equipment what you put the equipment on and the last sort of cheap creature to put a hammer on i think it's rather important is the creature land of ink moth nexus you know it's it's important backup piece getting that infect kill with the hammer i never actually got a kill with ink moth but it's something that is good to be a threat it's a line you can play to it's also in an artifact creature land so you can always turn it into a creature with its own mana it's just a tapped creature, but it's still an artifact creature, and you get that metal craft enabled if you need to. I mean, it's interesting that you say that, because I I definitely killed with this both with hammer and with cranial plating as like a backup when I didn't have an enabler or my cigar just mm-hmm. got countered or something like that. I'd go search up cranial plating instead, try to get on an ink moth and swing in for a couple of fives and be done with the game or something like that. So... Um, I think this, I mean, obviously this card is super important to decks like this. It was super important to affinity, even though people, you know, you didn't always totally understand, like it doesn't feel like it's on theme with the deck or whatever, but it's, it's an extremely important card for decks like this. Yeah. And I mean, you run a lot of white mana sources in this deck, but every once in a while, you're like, ah, oh, man, I wish Ink Moth tapped for white mana, but that's something, you know, you get the spring leaf drums in there too, but you know, it's strikes and gutters. Right. It's not a four of, right? No, it's a four of. It is a four of? I feel like... So I never won with one either, and part of it was because I thought that I didn't have that many, but yeah, you're right. I guess it is a four of. 
I would say if you haven't won with it, you haven't tried enough because I think yeah, it's a pretty probably. major plan B in the deck. I was winning so many games, so many other ways, Dave. Oh um, God, here it comes one good league. And suddenly he's back to his old braggy ways. Oh, his old braggy ways. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Brutal. All right. Uh, let's breeze through these support cards. I think some are more important than others. Uh, Mistress Bauble. Interesting in this deck. I think it does, you know, like Mistress Bauble always does. It does a lot for a little. Um, it's, you know, like, you know, of course, great with Luris, right? But and you know, enables your metal craft. It helps you cantrip through your deck. Helps you set up scries with your, your fetch lands. Like, you know, if you don't like the card, you can shuffle it away. If you like the card, wait to draw it, then do your fetching. Classic line in all those bobble decks. I found it valuable here because this is a top deck deck a lot of times and controlling your draw is really important yeah classic combination enables metal craft enables cranial plating comes back with luris gives you a scry why not and, and and to that point dave i'm surprised that you said that you sided them out sometimes because i felt like this card just does so much that i never felt okay siding it out maybe that's a mistake on my part yeah i think it's like it's a fine card but like you can get more targeted cards from your board without without reducing the way your deck works. Like, I don't think Mishra's problem makes your deck work. It just makes your deck run a little bit more smoothly. And so, like, if you're bringing in, like, again, the four Auric champions, then maybe you're like, okay, I don't need as many Mishra's Bobble in here. Up next, Giver of Runes. You know what this card does. A little protection. Nice alternative turn one play if you don't have Sigarda's aid. I can't believe this is not always in everyone's deck because like this is the kind of creature that I love being able to play because this is a white based deck. Right. And like some people don't run it at all. And I'm like, man, that seems like madness in today's meta. Today's meta, you know, Rakdos everywhere, red based removal decks everywhere. Yeah. Uh, it's just so nice to play this out on turn one and protect what you're doing the following turns. Yeah. This is one of the cards that depending on the matchup, I would side out. Like if I'm up against Tron, this isn't yeah you don't need it. This yeah. isn't doing a whole lot. And that's another, that's another reason. Like I like playing cards like this in my main, where it's like so often it's great main, and then it gives me an option to have something that's not key to the deck to remove. And again, I'm not a great deck designer. I'm not even a deck designer. Like I'm a, I'm just a player. You're right? a graphic so like, designer. Uh, yeah, formerly another life, but um, it does. It just seems weird to me that it's not. Uh, uh, main board, main deck inclusion most of the time. I think it is most of the time, but I think it's maybe losing losing some favor. Hmm. All right, next up, Springleaf Drum. Don't forget about this card. It's a single generic mana, That's and it's an artifact that has a tap sign. It says tap, and tap an untapped creature you control to generate one mana of any color. It's very good. It helps you ramp and helps enable Metalcraft. It's old affinity playbook coming coming back here as well. Helps you fix your mana. Like, I definitely made white mana when I needed it a few times off of Memnite. Exactly. I will say, other than Giver, this is the card that I would most frequently side out. Yes. Yeah, often. Because it's not really a ramp deck, right? It's not like a deck where you're like, I must ramp or I'm not going to win. Yeah, it's interesting. The deck that I that I played, well, the build of this that I played, had a Paradise Mantle in it as well to do a similar-ish thing and... uh that was also a card that I cited out a lot. We'll talk about that later, but um, yeah, the ramp can go quite often. What's this? What's this support card? L- L- Luru's, 
Luris of the Dream Den. Yeah, is that, is that a new? Yeah, that's the new, the exciting new plane that Wizards of the Coast is visiting. The Dream Den. Looking forward to it. Um, of course, we know what this card is, right? It, it's like even 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 reworked. This card is bonkers to me. It's just it's it's crazy to me. Like even getting one single important like one mana spell out of the graveyard, like a Sigarda's Aid, can be all you need to recover from like some early disenchant or like an engineered explosives on one or whatever, like whatever knocked out your cigar is eight in the first place. Like I always try to play it when I can get some kind of value immediately. Like Luris is the kind of card that you don't just cast it with three mana and like expect it to survive because your opponent does not want this card to survive. So you, you've got to get some kind of value out of it and you can. Yeah. That's Luris one oh one. I yes. think any deck that you have Luris, you gotta you gotta make sure you're in a situation where you get value the turn you play it. Varies widely by format, right? And historic, you have to, that basically means you have to play it on four. But um, yeah, always keep that in mind with your Loris. Don't expose it to removal until you, you're sure you can get a card back. All right, and a couple other ones and twos that uh, appear in some decks, but not all. Cranial plating. Yes, I thought this card was really important as a backup for situations where I did not have a way to cheat in my equip costs. So if I say say that I was in on a pure steel paladin hand when I was playing this and I was like, okay, I'm going to get pure steel out and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to get metalcraft and then I'll have hammer. Then I'll search up hammer or something, yada, yada. They kill my pure steel paladin. Then I would go search up cranial plating and try to move to a different plan until I kind of recovered from there. Yeah. As I mentioned, the deck that I was cribbing from didn't run this, but I really can see the value and I definitely will play it at least as a singleton next time I run this deck out. It also like avoids chalice on one, which is a real killer for this deck a lot of times. A lot of one drops in this deck. There's like 16 or 18 one drops. I had a really fun game with cranial plating against an opponent that had Karn out. Or they didn't have Karn out. They couldn't. But it was a Karn deck, and I was able to answer Karn, but they already got an ensnaring bridge out. Mm-hmm. So I was able to use two Ornithopters, a Cranial Plating, and a couple Springleaf Drums to get past the ensnaring bridge to swing with my zero power creature and instant speed equip Cranial Platings back and forth between the two Ornithopters <laughs> so I can like chip away basically five damage a turn. Classic. Beautiful. Classic affinity moves. Okay, this next one I want to debate with you guys a little bit. It's Shadow Spear. I feel like I like this card way more than you two did. I didn't get why it was here, to be honest. Like, yeah, I, it had no business being in the main deck. It always felt like I wanted something different. Now, which part do you think was really important? Lifelink? Trample. The trample, I thought, was insane against so many creature decks. Yeah. This is the same theory that kind of ended up with me running... Um, shadow spear in blue eyed auras and historic which is that uh, it's one of the few ways that are available to give evasion colorless like via equipment and so i i could get that for sure uh it's just that most of the situations that i was in i felt like i i didn't need the evasion so yes i think it could be in the sideboard myself like i'd rather i'd way rather have if i was given the choice if i was forced to make a choice between cranial plating and shadow spear i'd rather have cranial plating i think um, cause I, like you said, Stan is like, I never in, you know, my admittedly fairly small sample size, like shadow spear, I never needed to go get in any one of my game ones, but there was a few times where I was like, okay, this is a perfectly good card to have access to. It also has a cheap equipment cost. Like if you, when you, when you don't have the opportunity to cheat it, it's only equipped too. So yeah, it's not like insanely fast to get online, but when it is online, 
then you're pretty happy with it. Yeah, I, I really like this point Zan's making in the chat right now that it lets you beat the field decks, which is something that Colossus Hammer doesn't like blockers. Somehow the 1010 that loses flying doesn't add trample. So I, I think in those situations, Shadow Spear solves like a very important problem. I can yeah. see what you're saying though, Shane. Like it's not a, a problem that frequently comes up in game one that it necessarily deserves a slot, but I think it's defensible. Maybe it does. I mean, I think the thing that we're starting to emerge around here is that. There's a lot of, I think that if you're going to have Stoneforge Mystic in your deck and Steel Shaper's Gift and you're going to have an equipment deck, you really should have a few different targets to pull, right? Whether it's Shadow Spear, Cranial Plating, in addition to Colossus Hammer, just so you can actually do a little toolbox kind of game plan. And so you have to figure out what makes sense for the decks that you're seeing right now which one makes the most sense? Do you want something that hedges against blockers and burn, which is what Shadow Spear does? Do you want something that blocks against something else? Do you want uh, do you want the next card on this list, Swift Foot Boots, which gives haste and hexproof, which I think is a cool card too to have to have an option of to be able to just pull something out, maybe even play it at instant speed and have it be you know your creature suddenly has hexproof. Like this feels more on game one plan to me than Shadow Spear in a lot of ways. Yeah. All right, last one or two more. Paradise Mantle. Dave, you played with this card. I saw it in one list. It seemed a little too confusing for me, so I didn't didn't rent it. I mean, I I thought it was cool that it it was you were able to search it up on like Springleaf. Now, you're not using it to ramp. You are I mean, you sort of are and aren't using it to ramp. It's kind of like do you want to be able to get out of a low land situation using your Steel Shaper's gift to kind of move up from from there. You know, so there's there's not um I don't think there was like a huge amount of utility in this, but the deck that I played, the list that I pulled of this actually had like three of these main. And right. so it's kind of like, it I was a that. lot. Yeah. It was a lot. I mean, it, it, it costs zero. So it can enable you to um, draw a card off of pure steel paladin. It enables metal craft really easily. And also it's equip cost is super cheap as well. So you can turn your ornithopter into a bird of paradise if you want for a little while to just give you some extra mana. And final card this one feels super important. My list didn't run it, but I wish it did. And that's Unearth. Single black mana. Return target creature card with CMC three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. But really, you pay it for the cycling, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a cycling deck. So when you have your Drake Haven out, you know. Yeah. We forgot to talk about Drake Haven. We got so far in and we didn't even get there. I, I The deck that I played had one of these in the main and, and one in the side. Yeah. It's the kind of card that like I'd like to find room for. Like the the deck, the first place deck in the challenge had this as a two of. Like it's a nice way to rebuild the board. I'm kind of surprised they didn't combine this with Core Outfitter though in this build. Seems like a good thing to get back with Core Outfitter, right? Because then it's like you get an instant result of what you're getting back. Um, doesn't really take a lot of setup at that point. You're just like, I unearthed this Core Outfitter, I put it down, the equipment got on this thing, I needed nothing else on the board. That seems like a good combo to me, but I didn't finish first place in this challenge. No, you did not, though you did try. I will say one of the things that I liked about my deck, which is not a reason to not run on Earth main, but I did not have any black spells in my main deck, which I think just makes all of my fetching decisions, all of my resource decisions so much easier. Yeah, you're, you're like, do I have to go get Godless Shrine? No. I mean, that's kind of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit about the sideboard. Because yeah. it's fairly streamlined. There's some four ofs in here, uh, which I love. But there's also some fringe cards that not all the decks run. So four thoughtsies. 
nice catch-all. Yeah. Helps you out against, you know, other combo decks, decks that have like the sort of really important hate pieces. Like I really want to get that engineered explosives. I really want to catch that chalice and I need to thoughtsies this turn one or turn two at the absolute latest. Yeah. Whenever I was in a situation where I wasn't sure what to side in against a deck, I would just bring in some thoughts eases because it can get like removal spells out of the way, might get problematic inter- other problematic interaction, bigger threats, blood moons, etc. Some type uh, a couple copies of removal spells. So my deck ran Fatal Push. Other decks run Path to Exile, maybe Tragic Slip if you're if you're feeling <laughs> vapor <fancy. snag. laughs> Interesting. I, I hadn't seen Path in any in any of the decks. Yeah, they're in some of them. I mean, sometimes you just want to be able to tag anything, I suppose. And if you're a combo deck, it's like, do I really care that I'm helping my opponent get a little bit of ramp? I mean, and then you don't always have black mana. Like, it's not a ton of black mana on the deck. Like, I can see a few arguments for path over push. All right, this next one, frequently a four of, super important in today's modern metagame, and that's Oriok Champion. For those unfamiliar, white-white for a 1-1 creature that has protection from black and from red, and whenever another creature enters the battlefield, you gain one life. All parts of this card are good. Yeah. That's totally true. All-star. Every single piece can help you at some point in time. It's like the ultimate sideboard card, and sometimes it's the ultimate main deck card. Yeah, it's like, it just saves your bacon, so much right now there's just so many games when this card's blocking or gaining you life or attacking through blockers with that hammer yeah it's just the best you have to have it right now um you don't always have to have four but i think it i always in the matchups where it mattered i always wanted to see it in my opener and having four made that way more reliable in matchups where it matters i think it just wins you the games it's it's yes it's almost like a blood moon type effect where it's it gets into this it gets you into these situations where opponent cannot do anything meaningful to to beat it i mean i've i've had you know there's some smart sideboarding tech out there like kozilix return does tag it and you know that hurts but usually get some value out of it and if they have it you know they have the anti-hate and that's how magic works a couple other sideboard cards leonin relic warden this is what yeah. white white for a 2-2 when it enters the battlefield, you may exile, target, artifact, or enchantment until the Leonin Warden leaves the battlefield. Yeah, this is really important. Um, you got to have an out to chalice on one, and this costs two. Uh, it's even if Relic Warden gets removed, the chalice is reset to zero. So that can kind of be a pain for the deck, but nowhere near as bad as chalice on one. People are also running disenchants on the board as well. That's you know one and a white for destroy target artifact or enchantment. I'm also guessing primarily for chalice on one. Of course you can get other key important artifacts and artifact combo decks or engine decks or things like that. But it's the kind of card, like if chalice hate increases due to the popularity of this deck, you could probably think about running more or adding some disenchants as well. Uh, this card also can of course handle an engineered explosives, which is really nice. So a few cards that can really uh, ruin your day. Got some artifact-based graveyard hate. Nihil Spellbomb is a popular one since you can cantrip with it and rebite with Luris. But some people play Tormod Script. You can also play Relic, of course. Sets up Metalcraft too. And then uh, my deck also ran several Pithing Needles, which I found very important. And I don't know if that was just a metagame thing or if I 
had some confirmation bias, but I found myself bringing in Pithing Needles a lot against a lot of different decks. These are all good, important cards. Modern sideboard cards. Okay, so we played it. We played this deck yeah. uh, to various levels of success and enjoyment. Let's talk about how we actually felt about it, whether we even liked it. And I want to start with Shane. Set the bar for us, dude. Oh, boy. Uh, I liked this deck a lot um, because I think a little bit because of how it feels to play, which is sort of this interesting hybrid of modern decks I used to like to play a lot. And that's uh, Affinity and Infect. And it feels a lot more like those than some other fast decks that are popular in the meta right now. Did it feel like coming home, Shane? It felt more like coming home than I expected. Like, I kind of thought it might feel like prowess type thing where it's like, oh, my stuff keeps dying and and things like that. But really, what I liked is that it felt like it had a lot of ways to win games. And it had a lot of pieces that worked together well. And you could think about, you know, the, of course, the stereotype we bring up a lot is like, oh, sequencing is very important, but that's magic. Like the sequencing to how you deployed what you were doing and try to keep your opponent thinking you were going for one thing, but you're actually going for another kind of worked sometimes where it's like, hey, I feel like I felt like I was outplaying people sometimes. And that's a really good thing to feel because I haven't felt like that in a while. I haven't felt like I was able to have a deck that allowed me to, you know, outplay people in ways where it's like I maneuvered my way to a win versus like, okay, I got these cheese turn three wins or something like that. Right. And of course those were there and that was fun too. That's, you know, that's fun thing to do in modern. So that's kind of like my initial, my initial take is I had a lot of fun. Um, I thought it felt good to play. And it felt like it had a lot of ways to win games. And I'm and I'll stop there and we have a lot more to talk about in this section, I'm sure. I'll just say, like I kind of tipped at the top of it, top of this whole thing. I didn't quite get it at first. I think you know, watching the two of you talk about it in chat a little bit the last few days since I managed to pilot the deck and things like that. I there's definitely lines that I was missing and opportunities to try to grind a little bit more or just like, play a little bit more heads up but i think that just comes with practice i certainly saw the power of this deck like being able to out of nowhere win on turn three is pretty good you know and it's important in modern for an aggressive deck or really any synergy ish deck like this to have that potential to be able to keep up with the stuff that's real real broken in modern so yeah i mean i was i was kind of in between you guys where i think i liked it more than dave i didn't fall in love with it quite how shane did but i think part of that had to do with the fact that so a i registered a deck for a league but i made some kind of weird deck building er, unforced error that happens sometimes on on mana traders and i feel like it's my cutting and pasting or something that's exactly what it was i accidentally did a league where i didn't have any pure steel paladins in my deck so i only had four sigarda's aid effects and i finished that league one four so that's good. Um, <laughs> so so that was humiliating. But then I, I went back and, and played more matches in, in the two-player queues, actually, to try to turn some play points into another league. Didn't quite get there, but um, I, I like the deck. It, it plays differently enough from the Boros version that it wasn't just like picking up and riding a bicycle all over again. And I think... Unlike the Bros version, this has more of what Shane's 
gravitating towards, which is it gives you more incentive to play it out because you can line up positions for you that you can outplay an opponent in a way that some other glass cannon aggro strategies don't have. Yeah. Like let's, let's compare this to infect, which I think is kind of a natural comparison, especially because of being championed by a great player, Tom Ross, like infect sort of requires a few pump and, and or like protection, type spells and, this combo deck relies on cheating that hammer into play, right? And then I, I think about that. And it's like, well, why is this deck performing better than Infect right now? And it's because it's like, I feel like Infect has more redundancy in terms of the spells you have to cast, right? There's a lot of spells in Infect that do similar things. But then Infect has fewer creatures, right? That can be pumped. So like you have your eight infect mainstays at least in traditional simic infect well any creature in hammer time still hits for 10 to 12 if they have a hammer in their hand right and so when you have um 16 to potentially let's say 20 creatures in your deck then that's a lot of things that you can still grind that game into getting a hammer on a single creature and beating down with it so on the, on the topic of Infect, two things. A, when I was playing this deck, it felt to me like it played out like every game of Infect where you have scale up. You know what I mean? Where it's, that's the one card that just wins you the game on the spot. And instead of scale up, it's Colossus Hammer. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's weird because like the deck doesn't rely on protection that much. Like I'm still kind of blown away that there's not like any Apostles Blessing at all. But I think that you run so lean on mana that it's hard to even have the single white mana available. But in certain matchups, it's like, well, I could certainly keep that up yeah. and still probably try to maneuver myself to a win here. But yeah, I, I, I see some similarities to Infect, like Dave was saying, and of course, classic affinity builds, like all these artifact synergies add up. Like my payoff is Hammer instead of Archon Ravager or instead of Cranial Plating Shenanigans, although some decks do run that cranial plating. Yeah, and your other payoff is pure steel paladin instead of mox opal. Yeah. Right? Where yeah. it's kind of like that's what cheats you on mana. And, you know, these creatures are still free to cast. Bobble is free. It thins the deck. It allows for the scry. Springleaf gets your double white mana online if you need it. Ramp if you need it. All of this is fueling metalcraft or fueling your cranial plating. Like, so that artifact energy is there kind of like, you know, you said, Dave, when the affinity concepts and I think the deck, the reason I like it so much is that it feels much more like Infect or Affinity than it does Prowess. Mm -hmm. Because yes. like in Infect and Affinity, you can often be like one top deck away, or if you have Luris, like one graveyard recursion away from a convincing win. Or when you play Prowess, I rarely feel like I can climb back out of a bad situation, and I feel really helpless in that, and that's what gets frustrating for me. Yeah, that's just because you don't love Bedlam Reveler enough, but it, that's a, that's for a different show. <laughs> There's only so many Bedlam Revelers. All of them. Always reveling. Yeah, I sort of just felt like this was maybe the best version of Bogles I ever played, where in traditional Bogles, you need several pairs of pants to be lethal, and here you just need the one. And it it's just more stripped down. They're big pants. They're just, they're Jankos, They're Jankos, yeah. Yep. <laughs> the biggest pants ever, Colossus Hammer. They've got that little loop on the side of your leg where you can just put a hammer in. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> they're Carpenter, Carpenter Jankos? This is a hammer that's so big that it has a hammer loop on the side of it. That's for a smaller A hammer. really sturdy belt. Yeah. 
I do think we need to talk a little bit about keep or mull decisions. Definitely. That's such a level up for this deck, and it's maybe the first heuristic I think a lot of players come to when they pick it up. Because my shorthand was mull to a way to cheat on equipment costs. And I would sometimes go as far as four. If if my five was unplayable, I would go to four rather than keep a, a bad five. Just because the games with Sigardazade are so different than the games without. Even even against pure Steel Paladin, the games with Sigardazade are, are night and day. Yeah, I'd agree. So how hard were you mulling? Well, I, like I said, I might go to four. But here's the, here's a little math. Let's let's do some pivot tables on the fly. Between four hammers, four steel shapers gift, and four stone forge mystics, you have twelve ways to draw hammer into your hand. Yeah. That said, you only have four Sigardazade and four pure steel paladins, assuming you're not running core outfitters. Which even with core outfitters, that might be a one of some deck is run some decks apparently are running four, but Shane's was only running one. Yeah, so that's not that's not common. Right. So you've got eight to nine cheating mana cheating effects versus 12 hammer redundant effects and i think exactly because of that the numbers are on your side to draw into the hammer versus drawing into the enabler which is cigar to aid i agree for sure like the deck's designed around cheating right like the deck is not designed around oh getting my hammer into hand. The deck is designed around being able to cheat the equip cost, and so it's important to have that ability to do that. And so, Sigarda's aid, or at the very least, the the paladin are very important to have access to, and yeah, important to multi. It's you know, it's it's a combo ish deck, and you have to have your combo pieces in hand. Or have some way to tutor them up. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there's a danger in decks like this that we always have to be aware of, which is just that you need cards and you don't have card advantage. And so I don't think that this deck is quite... I would be really sketched out by by mulling down to four. You know what I mean? Unless, I, I mean, I guess if you're like, I'm going to mull to four and my four is Sigardazade, Ornithopter, Planes, Steel Shapers, Gift, and Hammer right is that even four yeah that's four cards um that can get you pretty far i guess exactly i mean you can win with with a one lander yeah yeah maybe i didn't mull quite a quite aggressively enough when i was playing this i definitely put a lot of emphasis on this idea that i had about the cranial plating backup plan being a good thing with it and so a lot of times if i didn't have the enabler early and had a path to plating plus ink moth nexus i would just go that way and see what else happened um, even if I was like protecting the ink moth with giver runes or things like that. So, yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't think this is a deck where we're like, we have to win on turn three or we're unlikely to win. I think Sigarda, Sigarda's aid, having that in play gives you opportunities to win quickly. So even if you are drawing to something or you're tutoring up something with a Stoneforge Mystic, like on turn two, and you're like, oh, I can't even deploy this until next turn. Like having that aid early gives you that ability to threaten your opponent with flashed in hammers. And, and they could be in your hand, even if you didn't you know, show that you tutored them up, right? And so you can get some false tempo simply by having that aid in play on the board because your opponent has to keep that in mind like if you have open mana and you have cards in your hand then what can my opponent do at this time like if i attack can they just crack back and kill me 
type thing. And that's a nice place to have your opponent uh, locked down. That's interesting. It's a little bit how like how some people think about Team or Battle Rage in Grixis yeah. Death Shadow, where it's kind of like you just representing that you have that in the deck means they have to respect, respect it. it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't... Yeah, I think to answer the question is like, or to answer sort of the implied question I sort of heard is like, is this a combo deck or you have to have all the pieces in play? I think it's not always the case. But I think that there are not a lot of matchups in modern any longer that don't feel like you have to race the other person in some way, shape, or form. Whether, you know, even if it's not like a highly interactive deck or even if it's like not the fastest combo deck in the world a lot of decks have a lot of ways to stop you, whether that's get enough mana to have their counter spells online or to stabilize their life total with an Uro or to get like some kind of mystic sanctuary, cryptic command type loop thing going on, tapping all your creatures down like, or getting an engineered explosives with enough mana, you know, to get the cascade or uh, not cascade. What's the, the one with all the colors, color, sunburst. color, sunburst. Thank you, friend. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, you always need to go, pretty fast it still is modern so there there were like a few matchups where i was like i want cards more than i want to have all the pieces in my hand but that was pretty rare so this deck is getting more popular we got to talk about how to beat it yeah because i'm 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 all i'm ready to say it's unbeatable <laughs> unbeatable i mean shane lost a canister today so well because canister had the turn three win <laughs> Yeah, two turn three wins. I, I I slightly misplayed game two, but I don't think it mattered anyway. Um, All right. Yeah. So like what? Like removal, artifact hate, things like Karn, the Great Creator, Stony Silence, like that kind of stuff, or direct artifact targeted removal, artifact sweepers, uh, creature sweepers, all that kind of stuff would be kind of annoying, right? All those are really good. Yeah. And and Karn. <laughs> the thing about Karn that's interesting is that it doesn't turn off the Sigarda's aid effect. Yes. But if you are in situations where you're counting on pure steel paladin, you can't equip for zero. Yeah. So it's just kind of annoying. Yeah, it's just kind of annoying. Chalice. We've talked about Chalice. (laughs) One of the biggest problems for this deck. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Chalice is a little bit less of a big player in the metagame right now. Like, I wonder if looking at cards would prove me wrong, but like, it's no longer like the old Tron metagame, right? But I mean, people are still people still going to play them, of course, and a lot of sideboards. But yeah, Chalice Envoy is really rough. It stops Sigarda's aid. It stops casting your Colossus hammers. It stops casting some of your early game creatures. It's it, you know, it stops your tutors. It's it's pretty rough. Blood Moon, Shane, you had a rough matchup against Blood Moon, which for a deck that's almost entirely mono white, it's not running all basic planes. Yeah, I mean, Blood Sun. Blood Sun was worse. I played against a Blood Sun deck. It makes your fetch lands worse than mountains. So I couldn't even tap the thing for mana. That's hilarious. I needed that mana. That's true. That's <laughs> true. I, I could have won. I could have won uh, if it wasn't in play. That's one utility for Blood Sun. Yeah. And Snaring Bridge. This one's good just because you are trying to swing with tens. And even though I had that one game where I was able to instant speed cranial plating, that's hard to do. So unless you're able to sneak in with a one power creature and then cigar as a flash in an equipment at the last second i find that ensnaring bridge can be kind of a problem especially because unless you have disenchant it's really hard to remove resolved permanence from your opponent's side that's kind of where thought comes in unless you happen to have board-based removal of your own 
Yeah, this deck is just sort of not trying to do that yeah. game for the most part. It's just kind of like, well, if you get your if you get your permanence down, you got me, but I'm going to try to win before you do that. True, true. Last one, engineered explosives. Oof. Big oof. It's good on zero. It's great on one. Yeah. And I think it's even not bad on two. Yeah, the the games that my I felt really unable to win were games when like my opponents would get multiple engineered explosives into play. They they could have it on uh in different numbers. They could, you know, get me once and then get me again. It was a kind of thing that felt impossible because like anything it's like graveyard hate that's that you have to pop where it's like well if i do enough to make you use it then it's still hard for me to rebuild from this position even with luris just because luris is such a you know it's not as anywhere near as good of a tempo play any longer anything else that i missed i don't think so. i mean the major things that i think really make this deck hard to win with was engineered explosives and chalice sure because that was just the kind of stuff that like you can't protect from uh it's chalice on one you have to have like your disenchant style effect and you run maybe four of those right now maybe more if if people start hating on it more but yeah you have to draw to it and i got lucky enough to draw to that a, a few times in my league and you know that was really helpful but that doesn't happen all the time yeah even if you don't have your chalice or ees abrade abrupt decay I feel like those are both amazing cards against this deck. Just something that can both tag a creature or tag an artifact at instant speed. Yeah. Yeah, enchantment or something like that. I mean, are are things like spell pierce good against this deck as far as like countering countering the equipment when it comes into play just because you don't often have extra mana? You can, you can sort of play around it. Yeah. Cuz of Stoneforge, but it's still I, I would still play it. I'd bring it in. I was I always felt a little bit nervous against counter spell decks. Cause it's just like, I mean, it's just like anything where it's like, I have a very important spell. Right. And if you, if you counter this very important spell this VIS, then I'm not very happy. Right. And so it's like, can I get enough copies of this where it's like, they can only have so many counter spells. Do, do I make them have it type thing? You do, you do the little internal calculus of, is it more important that I attack here and equip it versus, you know, make them use the spell or make them have the spell. It's always tough for me at least, against decks like that. Yeah. So why do you think this deck is doing well right now? Because no one's playing Jund. It just needs to come back. No, they're all playing red-black. That's That's got stuff to, to fight this deck. It's got token blockers. Can't deal with Oriok Champion. It's got Dreadbore. Nothing can deal with Oriok Champion. Yeah, that's true. Liliana can. It can. I mean, when a big portion of the meta is r- two different red-black decks... Though it does seem like there's space for like Oriac Champion to just be very, very good right now. And and also, you know, sometimes you just put hammer on your Oriac Champion and it's either unblockable or can't be killed. So Yeah, it's the best. Yes. Or both. I mean, I think that's that's potentially that's like one reason it felt so good for me, which is like, hey, I've got four Oriac Champion and a way to get it to be uh eleven eleven. Enjoy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like uh race that, this, my friend. This one goes up to eleven. Yeah, but I think, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things that it's flexible, like I was saying before. Like, I think it does have a lot of pieces. There's a lot of redundancy, right? Which is like an important thing we've talked about, like rule of eight, perhaps rule of 12 type things, which is like, I have a lot of ways to try to to do what I'm trying to do. And that doesn't stink. Like, it, it looks like a gimmick deck, but when you have all the pieces we have in our modern card pool, then you can see how it can all come together and be a legitimate deck. 
I also think people can sort of skimp on hate, right? Whether that's artifact removal or artifact sweepers, like, you know, some kind of shattering spree or like shatter storm type effect or, there's, uh, what else? Like, or engineered explosives or chalice of the void. Like when, when Etron slips down, you're not playing four main deck chalices any longer in a lot of decks. And like, sure, my, my one CMC heavy deck is going to do a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, it looked like, for example, in the mana traders event that there was maybe 18 chalice of the voids across 312 decks from the, the pivot table that Mickey so nicely put together. Yeah. It's not very many. Eight, 18. No, that's not very many at all. That's like max five decks with the with the card. I also kind of think that artifact hate is not really popular because there just aren't really many artifact decks right now. Yeah, this is a weird kind of corollary to what people used to say about the old affinity, which is like affinity will come back whenever people start shaving on artifact hate in their sideboards. Whenever people start cutting stony silence, then Arcbound Ravager is going to come back. And maybe this is like the new version of this or the version of affinity that can exist and people might start stacking more artifact hate as a result of that but so i I think it's kind of the perfect storm for this to sneak in where there isn't a lot of mid-range that can pick off creatures every turn right like i think if, if jund was one of the top decks in the format this would really struggle but there's nothing else really for jund to prey on so it's not like that's gonna make a sudden resurgence based on what we're seeing the in the current meta game i mean it is interesting stan that you say like you know if abrupt decay was more popular or if like maelstrom pulse was around like something that wasn't something that could handle enchantments you know what i mean like in in red black i don't think there's anything main deck that can handle those cards right there's nothing in those in 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 those colors that can handle enchantments i mean well black can now that new one don't forget oh yes that new one (laughs) that new one my my favorite card that new one that like they lose life equal to the CMC type thing. But yeah, maybe it's just the kind of thing where like it's, it's a good window. Like it's maybe that's, I, it's, I doubt it's the type of deck that can, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure it's the type of deck that it's not the type of deck that can always live as like a four of in a top eight. Yes. It's a, it's a type of deck that can find a window and take advantage of that window. And then people will be like, well, I have to prepare for this for a few weeks, for a few months. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, that's sort of the space that Infect was in, right? Where Infect would kind of disappear entirely, and then suddenly it would top eight. And then it would disappear entirely, and then suddenly it would top eight. Yeah. All right, so parting thoughts. Who among us is going to try building this deck in paper? <laughs> Not it. Not it. Man, if if I could play this in paper tomorrow, I'd build this deck. Like, but then I'm like, when am I playing? Like nine months from now, maybe? I was shocked at how expensive this deck is in paper. I was like, this has got to be a reasonable budget deck. There's nothing too crazy in here. And then I went and looked at it and I was like, whoa. It's all steel shapers, right? It's like $20 a pop. Uh, right now, Goldfish says that they are $22 a piece. They've gone up. Yeah. I should have bought them yesterday, like I was thinking, or two days ago, like I was thinking about. Saved a couple of bucks. They are more expensive than Stoneforge Mystic is for a play set. Yeah. I mean, it's only, I think it only has one printing in Dark Steel, right? Or something like that, or whatever set. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's not cheap. The mana base is not particularly cheap, but um, yeah, I I think this seems like a a deck that's going to be around for a minute, and I'm glad that you enjoyed playing it. Yeah, I mean, it's just like it it feels powerful. It's a little fragile, but it's not as frustrating to me as like other powerful fast decks I've played. Like, you know, Prowess has always been a little bit of of a frustration for me. 
Like, who do you think wants to play a deck like this besides maybe like old Infect, old Affinity type heads? I mean, one thing that's really interesting is, you know, like Lapless John playing this, you know, well-known devoted Druid combo yeah. aficionado player. And Etron. And Etron as well. Yeah, to see them move to a deck like this is super interesting. I mean, I think this is just like a good aggressive deck that once you unpack level one with it, which I didn't finish doing and you move on to level two ish Shane, you know, like you can unlock a whole lot of potential ways to play it interestingly. So I think it's probably got pretty broad appeal for a lot of people to be able to just want to smash stuff with a hammer. It seems like even pros want to pick it up, honestly, because it's gotten reasonable results. It's in, it's been in the challenges lately. We'll see how long it hangs on, but yeah. So one of those players that I mentioned previously, Triosk, who's been doing well with this deck this is one of those people whose mtg goldfish resume goes back to like 2010 yeah Yeah, that's a a while a real stalwart so the fact that this this has both appeal for people who want to try something aggressive as well as these magic stalwarts that have been playing the game for ages like laughless john and triosk i think this deck has more legs than it might seem at first and and i kind of like that assessment that one of you guys made that it, it it looks like it's kind of a joke but then once you actually start playing it and realize how much redundancy it has how well it can grind you kind of identify all of its potential for sure if we were to do an episode where we're trying to trying to get as many trophies as we can in a week shane is this the deck that you're <laughs> playing in our trophy race oh yeah for sure if only because like it's i i like it and it's fairly quick it's not as fast as i thought like it has a fast wind but like i said it has some grindy ones that would be the most depressing episode of this show ever. It would be like Stan got one trophy and Dave and Shane complained a lot about a two four ones that we got. <laughs> I, that would I, be it. That would be the one to do it. This first league I faced Canister. The second league I placed Aspiring. I faced Aspiring Spike. Third league was Lopless John. And the fourth league was Phil Helmuth. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff I'd run into. <laughs> Great. I'm glad that we've I'm glad that we never have to have that episode now because Shane's already done the whole thing. No, no, no. That's not what really happened. That's what would happen. No, I like know. Our, that's what would happen. Theoretical. Yeah, yeah, that's what would happen. Yeah. You get you got the episode right here. Episode 107. We're off next week. Yep. Perfect. Well, I guess that wraps up two episodes in one. <laughs> it's a real two for one. Let's get out of here. If you haven't, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in magic, modern, pioneer, historic, you can tweet us at the dive down all one word or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Also shout out to mana traders for sponsoring the dive down. If you sign up for mana traders using promo code, the dive down all one word, you get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. And this is a very rentable deck on, on MTGO. You don't need to get that top tier sub to afford this deck. It's 450 tickets right now. If you play Magic Arena, you can support the dive down without spending any money by using our affiliate link to download the free deck tracking software, Untapped. You can find that over at untapped.thedivedown.com. Also, every Monday, you can join us on Twitch when we record these episodes over at twitch.tv slash thedivedown underscore Shane. We use Shane's account because he's the prolific streamer of the group. Professional streamer. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. 
And until next week, get out there and bring your hammer! Oh, Spindrift is way better than LaCroix, by the way. But it also costs, like, even more. I've become fully a bubbly person now. I like it better than either one. You're weird. Spindrift has actual fruit juice. I I do like Spindrift a lot, but I kind of got yucked out by the texture of it. (laughs) Like, there's actual, like, pulp? You know that there's, like, pulp and juice in it, but... (laughs)